Welcome to Deus Books. Join us on a journey into the heart of Catholicism through the most interesting reading, stories, and doctrines that the Church has to offer. We don't need to know about Jesus. What we need is cards. With this, she pounded on the table and a hush fell over everyone in the hall. Jaws fell open and hands still clutching the card. The next card to be played hung suspended, frozen in the air. In addition to looking shocked, People's faces held a look of righteous appreciation that she had voiced what they all wanted to say themselves. The week before, when it became public that I was indeed going to sequester the parish hall on Monday nights to run a 10-week program of evangelization called the Alpha Course, the uproar was so great that an emergency meeting of the parish council had to be called. In spite of the words to, of advice to back off, as a 31-year-old priest pastoring my very first parish, I stubbornly pushed ahead. There was no other option. Little did I know that this would be the first of many matches I would have with the game of cards over the next 10 years of my priesthood. So that's a introductory story from the, a book called Divine Renovation, Bringing Your Parish from Maintenance to Mission by Father James Mallon, who is a Canadian priest who you, you're familiar yeah, with. Yeah, Nova stuff. Scotia, right? Yeah. Yeah. So up with the, the, the brothers up north, brothers and sisters up north. Yeah. Yeah. So what this book is, is uh, it's almost like a how to manual of how to make your church not not suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember when I was working in a parish, we were rolling this not only comes with a book, there's like a whole program and that's designed for parishes. Right. And uh, we were implementing this when they. Actually, part of the reason I was brought in was after they had read this book. Right. They're like, we need more ministries. Yeah. So. It's in the same vein as like uh, Rebuilt. Yeah. I think is another one. There's there's a couple of them out there. Picture Bar Rescue, but for churches. That's right. what this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah. We, you know, we've talked a lot about like big picture things, like, but with this one, we're going to get like a little close to home. I think very close to home. Like, what? should your parish look like or what is yeah. you know, his opinion on what a, a good parish looks like because yeah i mean that's that's just uh, you know the mission is while the mission is the same the how the mission is executed has changed over since the beginning and so this is just a part of that of that tradition um so yeah we're going to get a little uh, little more close to home with this one. And what's interesting about this is I think you'll find that the way to implement change in a parish isn't as tough as you think really it is. Really not. It's, it's, uh, it's not. Yeah. But it does come with some very, like, you have to make a choice. And we've discussed that in other episodes before, but with this, like, this is... Not, uh, you know, like a lofty, like, oh, you know, what's the church going to do with all these huge topics? No, this is straight up like your neighborhood parish down the street where you got baptized and confirmed and received communion. Like, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and so that passage I read, I love this story. It's basically, he comes in to take over this new parish, and he he's like, this parish has no ministries. It's a dying church. And so he wants to implement a evangelization program called Alpha, mm -hmm. which is like a video series, and it's pretty simple, but it it has a big effect on people. Yeah, we it, ran it. They have a, a high school version of it that we mm -hmm. ran. Yeah, that I I liked. Um, yeah, 
So, but, but to they, make it to make it more controversial, I think it's important to know that it's a it's a Protestant, yeah, even evangelization tool that has like a Catholic twist to it. I guess if you apply it to the a Catholic parish, but yeah, keep yeah. keep going. Um, but what's hilarious about this is it's like he's getting into a fight because people don't want him to run uh, an evangelization program because they want to play cards. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, um, it's kind of sad, really. Yeah. So I want to I want to keep reading part of this story. So he said, God blessed our parish immensely in those early attempts to run Alpha and reach out to the unchurched in our community within a year. This small parish would be hosting evenings with over 100 people gathering in the hall on Monday night to listen to a presentation of the gospel message with an invitation to respond. Lives were being transformed. The lukewarm were catching fire, and people who had been away from church were encountering Jesus in a powerful way. Um, ex- uh, the great card confrontation had been worth it. And <laughs> um, Before I continue on with this... Uh, it is kind of amazing. Like I remember, our parish ran something called Discovering Christ, yeah, which is a more Catholic version. Right, of I've heard of thing. that. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty simple. It's like you sit down, you watch a video, and then in a small group, you talk about the video. But it's amazing how much of a change something like that can have with um, people who have never done anything extra aside from just go to mass. Yeah. Um. And obviously, that's what happened. Over a hundred people, like that's pretty legit. That that is legit for Although, a parish that was dying. Yeah, that's 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 pretty significant. Although we had offered the card social group the first pick of any day or hour other than Monday nights, they opted to vacate the premises and go somewhere else. Not a few heads turned at this. After all, the social had been going on since the 14th century, including <laughs> including some of the original members, or so it seemed. The mystery of why they could not switch to another night was solved a year later. During my second summer at this parish, I was given a second smaller parish in a community about eight miles down the road. It was a church in decline. Attendance was waning. There was no outreach, no ministries other than liturgy, and a few generous members who looked after the building. Um, and so he's basically what happens is he gets his parish, turns it around pretty quickly. Yeah. And the methods at which he's turning it around is like, Duh, like yeah. offer something. Ministries. Ha, huh, what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Yeah. And I I like what he's going to talk about in this book because as Catholics we are kind of obsessed with the mass or at least attending mass. Mm-hmm. And so oh, th- yeah. he's emphasizing stuff outside of that in this yes. book. Yes. He's not diminishing the mass. He's just Exactly. Just focusing on something. Right. Um, but anyways, so he gets this second parish and he, he's like, all right, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to implement alpha and then I'm going to build a youth ministry too. And so he's like finding out where to host these nights and get, guess what? The only night that worked was Tuesday and Tuesday night was card social night <laughs> with the exact... <laughs> With the exact same crowd I had evicted from Monday night at the other parish. The saga continues. The mystery was solved. The reason they couldn't change their night was that they played cards in a different place every night of the week in a different parish. Oh, my. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? 
Um, so I I think we should talk about this for a second. He he this is a point he's gonna hammer home the entire book is like there's a lot of stuff that happens at church. Most of it doesn't have anything to do with church. Yep. Be it Boy Scouts, be it card socials, yep. be it whatever people do. Bingo. Bingo. Whatever, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so we'll, we'll continue here. <laughs> um, so, from 2004 to 2010, uh, he. by the way, he's laying all this stuff down because he's going to explain the need for what's in the rest of the book. This is still kind of in the beginning. But from 2004 to 2010, I was a rel- I was a pastor of a relatively well-to-do parish in a well-to-do part of town. It used to be the crown jewel of the diocese and housed the archdiocesan vicar general and gang of curates. Oh, wow. Until recently, it was viewed by pre-retirement places as the place to be before you hung up your hat. By the way, I didn't know that was a thing. Retiring? Like that you get try and get like that there's like good jobs you oh seek. yeah oh yeah really oh yeah <laughs> they're well, human too man <laughs> like you know i would imagine a priest that's like up there is like yeah i want to retire someplace comfortable like i want to end up before i retire someplace like where i can coast and like coast that makes, into sense. That makes sense yeah, yeah. i don't they're know why human. that was surprising to me <laughs> Like no, they're not gonna want to be like I want to. I want to challenge well, when I'm, I'm 68 years old. I want to challenge. Not many priests are like that because they're humans. Not many people are like that. Yeah, and um, so he says because of this, nothing new had taken place there for over 30 years. Buildings were crumbling due to deferred maintenance. The Church of Living Stones, the people, was not in much better shape. No adult faith formation, no development of ministries, no development of leadership had taken place. In many ways, it was living off the fumes of the past. Mm. The one saving grace was that there were no card socials. However, there were beavers, cubs, and scouts who used our buildings four nights a week and had been doing so for 30 years. (laughs) I feel like a lot of parishes are living off of the fumes of the past. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's, you're going to have to stop me as we read this book because right. it almost, I almost overemphasize a business aspect of church sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Because it's like, obviously, you have nothing of value you're offering aside from mass on Sundays, like, obviously your building's going to fall apart if you're not doing anything of value. But that's, I would argue, though, from a from a different standpoint, not like the, the business standpoint, but like the mission standpoint, if, and that's, I think, what, the, what he, that's the heart of his thing. Like, yes. if it's not, if it's not part of Christ's mission and it's not part of the mission of that parish, it is anathema. Like, if it's not within the bounds of what you're trying to accomplish it is a waste of energy and a waste of time and a waste of resources and so i don't think it's looking at it from a too much of a business standpoint it's almost like a you know we're military people like if it's not part of the mission what's the point we're not wasting our time on it yeah and that's his mindset throughout that whole book i'm gonna do one more passage before i get out of this uh, sort of survey that he's doing. But yeah. uh, the reason I like this part is because 
he's hitting on something that we all see in the Catholic world. And when he points it out, for whatever reason, it seems so dumb, even though it's just status quo. But so he gets a new pair. He gets that parish, runs Alpha, 70, 80 people show up. The parish wakes up. It's like a whole new place. So they move him again. They've turned the diocese has essentially turned him into like a fixer upper of parishes. <laughs> he's the fixer. And so they give him another parish. Yeah, he's the bar rescue guy, basically. Yeah. And then so this is a mile away, described exactly the same, except ninety percent of its facilities had been leased to a boys' school, in addition to hosting a community basketball league. They had no real connection to the parish except that one of the teams played under the same name as the parish. Whatever space was not used by these groups was jealously guarded by, you guessed it, two afternoon card socials. <laughs> and so these the, cards, man, they're running wild. Yeah, and so that's that's what he spends the whole time is he gives like ten stories of the same problem in all of these parishes. Yeah. Why do you think this is the case? Well, I think what I think what it's a it's a symptom of a couple things. I think one, these churches were established in the Christian era. And so this understanding of faith or at least duty to the faith at minimum was enough to keep it keep people coming keep people there the parish was the center of social life for a lot of people because of that mm -hmm. and so that's where they got comfortable that's that's that however what people haven't or at least haven't admitted or moved to work on is the fact that we are in a post-christian era this sense of duty to the faith doesn't exist in the in in the norms of the culture and so you know to use the the buzzword the new evangelization is what's seeking to you know to address that and parishes have not um, bought into that or participated in it and so they're hanging on to these things from a bygone era and it's it's killing the mission because it's not participating in it that's essentially what he says. Yeah, the words he uses, we'll get to it later, but the words yeah. he uses is these churches are propped up by by the uh, culture that doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. And so now they're beginning to fall apart. Yeah. But this is interesting. He says, the identity crisis in our church today is not unlike the one that existed at the time of Jesus. It is said that it's not so much that the church of Christ has a mission as that the mission of Jesus Christ has a church. We, however, have so forgotten our essential missionary calling that we have contented ourselves with maintenance and serving others. That the church exists for the sake of mission has been asserted by popes and theologians continuously for the last 50 years, but most Catholics perceive mission as something a select few carry out in far-off places in most parishes, crippled by a culture of maintenance, focus at best at, on meeting the needs of the parishioner. And I think the the select few, you can substitute clergy or religious. Yeah. In that statement. I think this is where the Second Vatican Council was ahead of its time because the Second Vatican Council addresses the laity and makes it a point 
to talk about the laity and its role in salvation because it's not, it's in fact not the work of the clergy and religious to do all the evangelizing. That's precisely not their role. Yeah, it's a part of their role, but they're sacramental ministers. Yeah, and somehow the perception got it that that's what it that's what it is, and then our role as parishioners is like be a good person and check the boxes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very consumerist idea that is unique to the West, and that's what's killing it. It's the laity has been allowed to become consumers. And I fault the church. I'm not faulting the laity. I'm faulting the church for allowing it to get that way. Yeah. And I think you would agree on that. You and I agree on that. Is you know, We haven't empowered the laity or expected them to lead the charge on evangelization. It's been, you know, the clergy, you know, it's, we talk about clericalism. I think that is a symptom of clericalism, where up oh, the priest is in charge of everything, and so, all right, he's going to do his thing. I'm going to come and receive my my Jesus cracker and and leave, and then that's it. Yeah, and that's exactly what he's arguing against. Here, uh, so he emphasizes this idea of like mission, like get the lady to be involved in the yes. in the mission, and. Um, so he's he's talking it's under a header called making disciples. So here's what he says. What do we mean by making disciples in church culture? We often use terms such as disciple or apostle without understanding the meaning of these words. But disciple is so key to our mandate from Jesus that we ought to know its meaning. The word in Greek for disciple is methedes, which in turn comes from the verb methenein, meaning to learn. Think of the term math. To be a disciple is to be a learner. To be a disciple of Christ is to be engaged in a lifelong process of learning from and about Jesus the master, Jesus the teacher. The English term disciple comes from the Latin discipulus and provides the connotation that the learning process is not haphazard, but intentional and disciplined. I think this is where... This is where, like, youth and young adult stuff shines. Because yeah. what do you, you know, what do you say at youth group? Hey, you know, invite invite people to come. Like, you know, we're having, we're having a life night or a youth night or a retreat, especially for retreats. Like, yeah, invite your friends to come. Do adults do that? No. Because, like, and I think this is where being, like, childlike is so important. Because, you know, we, we, a lot of people lament the young and la la da 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 They're still open. In fact, I would argue young people are more open to receiving the message of, of the gospel than older people are. Yeah, and more on the disciple as learner thing. It's like, think about the conversations that we've had with um, the youth and, and their willingness to ask questions about the faith and learn and it's like there have been i know that there are people that were in my youth group and in your youth group that know more about the bible and about the catholic yeah. faith than probably most people in the parish yeah. because mass as good as it is you and as 
as necessary as it is in the if you think about the homily, you can't ask a follow up question during no. the homily. If if you and I are talking about something, a kid can ask a question, yeah. and then I can respond, and then yep. we can have a dialogue about it, and they can re- get to some real understanding. Yes. And the environment exists for that to happen. Yeah. What a homily should do, a homily should stir up these questions, or a homily should stir up these these thoughts, and then you bring them to something later and grow. And then he gets into this. There isn't anything in a lot of parishes to do that, to yeah. do just that. Yeah. We do it for the teens. We do it for young adults. There's no, like, any of that for older folks. And there's a demand for it based on his experience because yep. all he's doing to turn around these parishes is providing that. Yes. And then what is he getting? He's getting 100 people show up yeah. in a really small community. And so there's clearly yeah. a need for it, a demand for it. I'm going to shout out uh, St. Clarence, my parish. You know, uh, Father Neil started um, a a a group to to watch the Chosen series, just to learn oh, about cool. like who Jesus is, to learn about the ministry of Christ in a really well you know well done way, and it's bringing people because there is this desire to know, and yeah. he's creating this environment. For them to encounter that. Yeah, St. Peter's did a great job of that with their Discovering Christ series. Because, like I said, it was simple. Come, eat food, watch the video, talk about the video. And there's some amazing learning that goes on in that. Yeah. Um, Fellowship. Simple idea. Over the last 50 years, our society has witnessed what can arguably be called the most accelerated social change in human history. As we have moved through several paradigm shifts in the last generation, the pastoral practice of the Catholic Church in the West remains, for the most part, unchanged from what existed prior to this Mm -hmm. flux. Now, I want to comment on this real quick, because you hear this a lot. Why doesn't the Church change? The key word he said is pastorally. Right. So the doctrine stays the same because it's truth. That never changes. Right. Pastoral, how you teach that, how you reach out to people— that can change and should yes. change. Yes. yes. I mean, that, that's the, that is the history of the church. Yeah. How often through time, you know, uh, early church, you know, with, with Rome and all that, that secular symbolism or pagan symbolism, the church was like, okay, this is what they know. All right, so we're going to use that to teach the faith. I mean, like with little kids, how often do you, you know, relate stuff to concepts that children can understand? All the time. Like the church has done that with adults. Like, hey, you understand this? Okay, yeah, this is like Bishop Barron's really good at doing this. Yeah. Like with movies and, and, you know, popular culture stuff. Like understanding tenets of of the faith through that and using that to illustrate it. Without dumbing it down. Without dumbing it down. The church has done that for two millennia. Yeah. And so why should that stop now? It shouldn't. In fact, it should not stop now. It should continue to do that. That's the action of the Holy Spirit. That's what Saint, what, uh, what the Second Vatican Council is getting at. Yeah. It's like it's time once again to renew the way that the church pastors the flock. 
So he expands culture supported faith and church attendance. Demographics supported our pastoral development through the birth of children and the movement of migrants. We were particularly good at making disciples 50 years ago, but it was not obviously to our detriment. As long as we would go and open churches, there would always be new communities of migrants and new babies. As long as we baptized and taught in our schools, we pumped out good practicing Catholics. He says that in quotes, like air quotations. In a sense, we got away with not making disciples because the culture propped it all up. Fast forward through the 60s. The sexual revolution, mass media, new media, postmodernism, materialism, relativism, individualism, hedonism, and every other ism we can think of, all of a sudden the fault lines are revealed for all to see. There you have it. Yeah. What's uh what is hopeful about this though? This survey he does. The a hundred years or so where he describes where we went wrong and in the process of fixing it for the future, that's just a little blip in church history. Right. So it's really minuscule. Yeah. So not to, to to take away our role in this, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll correct the ship until a new problem comes and then we'll screw it up again. <laughs> or we'll Right. I wouldn't say we screw it up so much as we are sl- the church is slow to adapt. Yeah. It's like a big ship. Yes. It takes a long time you to turn. You can't just m- turn on a dime. Yeah. I mean, for Christ's sakes, it takes 500 years to figure out an ecumenical council. My goodness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think that was heretical, by the way. I don't think so either. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> that You're my heresy check. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so he sums all this up. Something must be done. Drastic action is required. Over the last four years in my present parish at St. Benedict overturning a few figurative card tables, we did regain control of our facilities. Since then, we have almost 2,000 people participate in Alpha, Alpha, with 20 to 30% being non-churchgoers. We have run hundreds of different faith formation events or programs and have seen hundreds of lives changed and transformed as people encountered the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Through these experiences... They have came to know God as their father and have come alive in their experiences of God's family, the church. All of this through God, which has enabled us to rediscover our new identity through Pope John Paul II's call for the new evangelization whose roots are in the Second Vatican Council. So there you go. What do you think of that? the, The key word that he uses there is drastic. I don't think either of us would probably be the most empathetic people when it comes to like command decision making. But you know, this is um people get uncomfortable with the term church militant. We are the church militant. We are on this planet soldiers for Christ and his mission. And so there should be some level I'm not calling for like physical like crusades, but there has to be some kind of drastic action. You know, if if all you're th- you're doing at the parish is like cards or bingo, like <sighs> nope, Christ would be overturning those tables. Yeah, get that stuff out of my house, and that's the stuff that pastors have to start doing. 
And 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 the thing is, there's a political aspect to this, you know, donors and stuff. Like, I get it. You got to keep the lights on, but there's also an element of faith there too. If you're doing it, yeah. if you're doing it for for God and His mission, He will provide. Now, what that provision looks like, that's not up to you. It's up to Him. You know, He talks about that. I don't think I cover it in the yeah. notes I picked out, but he I was going to mention it. He says that when he did all this stuff, when he invested in ministry, mm-hmm. when he invested in the the buildings, he's itself, big on investment. Yeah. It that it did he did see a return. He and he mm-hmm. breaks out stats. He shows like the parish budget and he shows how not only did he get more people come to mass, but the donations increased because yep. now people are involved. To and, your point, there's value. Yeah. People invest in something that has value to it. That's not just business. That's just intrinsic human way of being. And it feels like it's theirs, right? Yes! If, ownership! If it's 100 degrees in mass and they need a new air conditioning, they feel involved in the parish and they're yeah. like, this is for me. And right. so they're willing to... Like, and, and this goes for like, this is specific to like fundraising. If you give people a vision and a mission with their dollar, they will be willing to th- throw money at you. You know, like I come from a, from a, you know, I am very blessed. Like St. Clarence is an amazing parish, great people that are motivated to act. And so if you, you know, if I, when I gave them like, Hey, I want to do this with the teens. I want to go here. We want to do this. Like there's a specific purpose to why I'm asking for their help. They come in droves and they are generous because they know what they're investing in. They see it. And so that's, that's up to the pastor and the people within the church to say, hey, we want to do this. Let's rally around that cause, and it'll happen. I I don't think this story is okay to tell. I, I remember when I was youth minister, I we were going to Steubenville. Mm-hmm. And when they um, – I didn't exactly have a budget because I had I'd been the first youth minister in a long time. Right. So it was a limited risk they were willing to take, which I totally get. Yeah. And so I I was like, okay, I'll fundraise for this. And I had never fundraised before. And so I <laughs> yeah. I uh I put together this quick fundraiser thing where it was like I go up and I say, "Hey, uh, this is what we want to do and here's how much money we would need if if yeah. if we wanted and and uh so then I go stand in the back and I and would people would come and give the money. Not very creative at all. Right. I had I think I had a number board where it was like there were 75 numbers and if you if you take one number and it's the number 1 you donate a dollar and if you take the 5 you donate 5. Yeah. And I was like if we get all the numbers I I can take this many people on the right. retreat. And I was like I remember the first I was like I am not looking forward to this. <laughs> Cuz I hate I hated that I part hate of the asking, job. Yeah. But anyway, I'm standing in the back with in front of the number board, and I have two of the teens with me. And this is like the 7 a.m. mass, the 8 a.m. mass. It's like the early one yeah. that no one really goes to. The 6 a.m. mass? Not this. I couldn't okay. get any teens to come well, to 6 a.m. with me. That shock me either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just me at the 6 a.m. <laughs> Not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it was that second one, and this family comes up, and... Uh, the the mom was volunteer had volunteered herself to go on the trip with me because I needed chaperones, and then they picked the highest three numbers and donated it, and then I was like, 
you guys don't have to. I mean, you're already coming on the trip. You're giving more than enough. And they're like, yeah, but I want my daughter to go. Boom. And I want I want other people to be able to go. So we're just going to take care of these for yep. you so people can are more. And it was super easy. But it was because their daughter had a good experience at the youth group so far. And they saw the value in what they're doing. And so it was no problem for them. They thought it was willing to do so. Right. Yeah, spend money to make money. Exactly. It's it's investment is is key. Yeah. Was that story okay to tell? I think so. Okay. Now I think it's important to remember, like, not every parish is is able to like raise a ton of money, and that's okay. But what that means is then your your goals have to be in that sphere like in uh, you have to have a clear on like goals have to be realistic like you have to understand the excuse me the makeup of your of your situation so like you know you have to make with you have to start with what you have to make to to do more so you know if if you can't do all these extravagant things okay that's fine because that's not the point yeah you have to figure out what the point is and do what you can to get to that. You yeah, know? I agree. This is funny how he words this. Without any academic attempt to support my statement, I'd like to claim that the central theological insights of all 16 documents from Vatican II can be summed up in the following phrase. The universal call to holiness and the universal call to mission. Yes. Think he's right? Yeah. I do too. Completely, completely accurate. I just like this statement. Without any academic attempt to support... (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm going to start saying that. Yeah. (laughs) Without any evidence, I'm going to (laughs) say... Yeah, but I think he's right. I think that that is... Like, that's Vatican II. Yeah. Yeah, so here's... He says... As he says, the good news proclaimed by the witness of life sooner or later has to be proclaimed by the word of life. This is a very important principle for us today as it emphasizes proclamation and the dimension of Paul VI's definition. Certainly, however, there is a primacy to the witness of life. We instinctively cringe when we encounter someone who is not living but is spouting it. However, it's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and, and and both-and is a sound Catholic principle. Yes. Um, What he's talking about here is that... uh, Actually, I'm going to get into it because it's kind of funny. Okay. Have you ever heard someone say that, like, uh, St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words? I have heard that attributed to him. He is arguing against that when he says this. Interesting. He says there's much confusion today about the necessity of using words to achieve the goal of evangelization. We've all heard the saying attributed to St. Francis de Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. In spite of the popularity of this phrase, it appears to be a kind of ecclesiastical urban myth. A search for the Franciscan omnibus of sources will not turn up this quote. St. Francis appears never to have said this, and in any case, it's, it's wrong, as St. Paul tells us, that faith comes from what is heard. Yeah. The message matters. Words matter. I don't know how I feel about this, because 
on one hand, I like that quote because I think far too many people talk and talk and talk and don't do anything about it. But on the other hand, like I have a right to talk about my faith. Yes. And a mission a, obligation. You have a duty, to. yeah. Yeah. I wonder how that urban legend got got uh That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But what do you think about that that it's it, like we cringe when we encounter someone who is not living it but spouting it. Like Well, because it's hypocrisy. If I'm like preaching something and I don't actively pursue it, my words are meaningless. My words mean nothing. Yeah. You should like you shouldn't listen to me. You know, something powerful that I've never forgotten. Gandhi read from the New Testament every day and he said someone asked him like um, why aren't you Christian? And he goes, if I had ever met one, I would have became one. Yeah. It's a powerful statement. It is. It's also an unrealistic statement, it is. though. It's like it people sin, dude. Yeah. Chill. Like, chill. Yeah. Do chill I have on. to be perfect because <laughs> I'm Christian? <laughs> like, yes, be perfect, but that's a pursuit. Yeah. So they, um, he does something really interesting here. There's a uh, phenomena of Latin American Catholics leaving the Catholic Church. And then they, they had a doctor analyze this, basically do exit interviews with people. Mm. And then they wrote this big document that said why people leave. That was done by the University of Peru with the, with the Latin American diocese. And uh, they came up with four reasons. So I figured I'll list the four and we can talk about them. All right. Number one, the faithful have never experienced a personal encounter with Jesus Christ that was profound and intense within the Catholic Church, but had done so in other churches. This encounter came about due to a charismatic proclamation in the personal witness of evangelizers that led to personal conversion and a thorough change in their life. They had not encountered this in their experience in the Catholic Church. Doesn't shock me. Doesn't I, shock me. I'm going to give credence to this because I remember when I was getting into my faith, um, it was mostly in a Protestant circle. And mm -hmm. there was just set, seemed to be more zeal in Protestantism yes. at the time than. Yeah. I would agree. It's the same with me. I mean, it's. The experience matters. The experience matters yeah and and so many people say well i didn't get anything out of mass and it's correct to say well it's not about what you get out of mass it's what you put in the mass that is that is correct to say however that doesn't mean that the church doesn't owe them an experience yeah. or an opportunity to have one and so that's that's why it, what happens outside of the Mass is so important. The Mass, we say, is the source and summit of our faith. All right, cool. The summit, we're there. We're at the summit. But it's also the source. So it's supposed to have us do something. Something is supposed to happen because of the Mass, because of the Eucharist. And if that isn't happening, there's no experience. And when there's no experience, there's no encounter. And when there's no encounter... 
I'm out. Yeah. And so, like, parishes need to come to understand this, and and people need to come to understand this. And I think as youth ministers, we have a particular uh, experience of this because for some reason we provide experiences for teens that we don't provide for adults, and I don't understand that, and we need to change that. Like, that needs to change. I think first and foremost, retreats. Yeah. That's a great place to have an encounter. My goodness. Like, you and I have sat... And been witness to when we have like praise and adoration happening and you see the encounter, you're privileged to see the encounter happening and how powerful that can be. Now, is that where you keep them? No, but that's where you you start the journey. Yeah. That's where that seed is watered and cared for so it can grow. Mass, source and summit, sure. Eucharist, yep, peak. But also the source. And if it doesn't cause you to do anything, it doesn't cause the parish to do anything for its people, people will leave, and rightfully so. Say what you will about Protestant masses, especially in the evangelical and Pentecostal circles, they know how to have an experience at, yes. ma- at their yes. church service. Yes. Yeah. I've I've often thought of... Of doing this, uh, this is an idea that's been, like, building up in my head since being a youth minister. Like, we have life nights. Like, we expect teens to go to Mass, and then we expect teens to show up on a Sunday night for for a youth thing. Okay, why is that different for adults? Why is the standard different? Why do we expect adults to go to Mass, and then, okay, that's it? To me, that's... That's hypocritical. Not to mention there's a convenience factor if that you could do if you had something offered because, hey, my kid's going to youth group. I'll drop them off, and then I'll go to this. Or hey, vice versa. I right. want to go to this, so I'm going to make you go. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, like, what a concept to have something for parents. Like, th- that should happen. Yeah. Like, the, the, the fact that, okay, well, the adults go to mass, and all right, they're good to go. But no, the kids have to go to mass, and they have to go to youth group. What does that say? I, yeah, I think that's inappropriate. I think so. You know, I think there should be stuff for adults outside of the mass, and that's exactly what he's arguing. Number two, the presence of meaningful community life where people are accepted and feel valued, visible, mm. and included in the church. Mm-hmm. They had not experienced this in their Catholic context, but did when they joined other churches. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we were just talking about, I I feel like. Like, feel valued, visible, and included. Hey, thanks for being here. It's good to see you here. The acceptance thing I roll my eyes at. Like, people, I feel like people read into that too They read into it, but there is a truth to it. Like, that's that's that to me is just upholding human dignity. Like, that's, that's to me what acceptance is. Like, hey, you're here. You're God's son or daughter. Like, awesome. You know what? I just talked myself out. You just talked me out of it because I I remember doing this when I first started working at the parish. It's like like I ticked some people off when I sat in the wrong spot because yeah. I sat in their spot. Yeah. <laughs> like holy smokes, God forbid. Yeah, I remember I got I was getting eye rolled by these ladies, and I was like, I clearly sat in their spot. <laughs> and then uh, it was the day I was getting introduced to the parish, <laughs> and so they. <laughs> They call me up to go, and yeah. so I go stand up and give my talk, and then I sat down. Yeah, I met, I'm, I looked at them when I sat down. Good. I was like, 
feel bad. <laughs> feel bad. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I think, um, and especially, and I don't know if this is one of his points, so stop me if it is. But like, especially like all these subcultures that have that have popped up, in particular, like you know the LGBT community, like acceptance is not. I mean, they would probably argue against this. Some of them would, not all of them. But acceptance is not like permitting and celebrating everything about somebody like i'm still allowed to disagree with you like you know there's stuff people do that i don't agree with but i still accept them it's you know it's it's a it's their reality and i that doesn't mean like i have to embrace every single piece of it yeah and so that's a tricky line to. it is a tricky line it's a very tricky line to walk we can certainly do better at it yes we absolutely can so like you know things like uh you know, like, I love the concept of Donut Sunday. Some people hate it, but, like, people sitting down after Mass, having conversation, awesome. Yeah, I don't like donuts. If it was, like, Bacon Sunday, I'd be there <laughs> every Mass. Yeah, St. Clarence does offer a breakfast bake. Again, really? I'm just promoting my parish. But Next one. Biblical and doctrinal formation, not as theoretical and cold knowledge, but something that brings about spiritual, personal, and community growth and brings people to maturity. That I I for sure agree with. Yeah. Pro- your everyday Protestant knows more about the Bible than your everyday. Maybe not. Maybe they don't know more, but they they know what the Bible says more. I would argue that they're not reading certain parts correctly, but that's another can of worms. But right. um, they certainly know what the Bible says. And at the very least, they're not afraid to pursue it. Yes. Like, yeah. even if we would argue that their interpretation is wrong, they're not afraid to pursue it. I mean, they pursue it aggressively. Yeah, and that's something I've always admired about yes. Protestant denominations is their, like, the way that the, the fact that they view the Bible sacred and sacred worth, scripture that's important yeah yeah and and the church like that's a truth that the church would celebrate yeah is the fact that sacred scripture is indeed keyword sacred and so we ought to know it and so yeah bible studies parishes should be having bible studies or some kind of study like book club something something to that effect should be happening because to go back to our experience like that's what youth group is yeah <laughs> You know, that's more or less. That's what it maturity is. Maturity yeah. of faith comes from. Yeah. Number four, missionary commitment that moves church members from the pews to go out and meet those on the periphery to bring people home to the family of God. Mm-hmm. In my years, I've been invited to church by a lot of Protestants. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't know that most people could say the same about no. Catholics. I would agree. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, yeah. look at all the signs, just in terms of just, like, the signage during Easter time, at least uh, up uh, uh, in Cuyahoga County or whatever. You see one of the one of the big Protestant churches in, in that area is, like, Grace Church. And, like, every Easter, like, every Lent, you start seeing all these yard signs pop up about, like, going to Easter service at grace and and just something small like that is yeah i mean the the invit like the invitation aspect is lacking in the in the church front now i will say i want to defend this a little bit okay like 
I don't want to invite somebody. Let me think of how I want to word this. (laughs) If I invite someone, convince them to come to church with me, and then I bring them to church, and it's boring, and it's everybody's Ah. dead in there, and it's like, it's like no wonder. Like you can invite someone to a a non-denominational mass, and they're probably going to have a good time. There's music. It's lively. It's like it's hard to. It's hard to grab yeah. someone off the street and bring them to a Catholic mass and and see that. And I think, and I think he would agree with this. I think that's where the idea of summit comes into play. Like the mass is the summit, like the Eucharist is the summit. Like that's where we're moving towards source and summit, right? We get like once we're in, that's our source. But I think until you're in, that's the summit. And so what what he would argue. And what Alpha argues is you gotta you gotta bring people in somewhere else. Yeah. In some in, other capacity. Yes. In in you know, in a Bible study or some kind of like discussion group or you know, like watching the chosen series and just talking about components of the I'm faith. I'm much more willing to invite yep. someone now. And to then that, you yeah. lead them to the summit, which is the Eucharist, which then causes them to go forth from it. That's that whole source summit thing. So yeah, no shocker that people are inviting people to the Mass, because when I think about the Mass, I'm like, hmm, if I wasn't Catholic, yeah, I would never come back because one, I don't understand it. So I don't even understand the formula of the mass and why it's moving the way it's moving and then why it's so quote-unquote boring because I have no understanding of it. I'm just sitting here, then I'm standing here, and then sometimes I'm kneeling, sometimes I'm not kneeling, depending on the parish. So of course I'm not going to like, uh, what is that? No. Yeah. So his argument is to, to you got to lead him to that point. Uh, so he does a similar thing, and, and this time he's he's breaking down a talk by Pope Francis, temptations that lead the church astray. And it's not the temptations you think. Okay. Number one, sociological reductionism. This is manifested by defining the gospel and the church by purely sociological categories, making the church an instrument of Market, market liberalism or Marxist ideology has found in many expressions of what is known as liberation theology. So I, I think I can simplify that e- even further, just politicizing church. Right. Right? Is that what that... Yeah. And I see that on both ends. I don't know that it's... I think it's something to guard against. I don't know how predominant that is in the Catholic Church per se. <sighs> It's I, I don't see it to the degree I see it in other churches. I'll say mm. that. Come election season, I think it can get pretty Yeah, maybe that's true. Pretty political. And I would argue that the it's very evident like in in many cases where a particular parish aligns themselves. I see you it. You might be right. You might be right. Maybe that's maybe maybe I just uh try and ignore that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I I can't blame you, but yeah. like I think it's very tempting to latch on to a political issue or yeah, I think You know what that is true because if you think about who's the who's the fight for the end of abortion, Catholic Church. I mean, yeah. 
it has even though the pro-life mo- movement is contains you know a lot of protestants actually but if you ask someone on the street like who's behind the pro-life movement catholics yeah immediately yeah i would i don't necessarily know that with that issue that's a bad thing no but, but if it, that's where your focus is like that's your driving if point that's what comes to mind when you think of catholic church that's, that's n- the and problem. that's exactly what pope francis like that's his that was his point when he was like you know, don't be obsessed about abortion. Like, that's this point he's making is, yeah, abortion's bad, but if that's your rally point, you're missing it. Um, I like this one. This one I see all the time. Psychologizing. Oh, yeah. Pope Francis here identified the trend in the decades following Second Vatican Council and many houses of formation and retreat centers whereby an imminent self-centered psychology replaced the encounter with Jesus as Christ as the foundation for our Christian life. I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna tie in a quote from Flannery O'Connor where she says, "Modern liberal thought has turned religion into poetry and therapy, mm. and it has made truth vaguer and vaguer. Yes, and eventually that leads you to the point where God is an invention. Right. I I do see that. Yeah. Again, that goes back to. Parishes need to provide opportunities of encounter. Because if there's no no opportunity for encounter with the risen Lord himself, then what is left but, you know. He mentions a couple others from that document, but I want to move on to this. Pelagianism, which is an ancient heresy. Can you explain to us what that is? Yes, I will. Uh, this is, he, this guy sees this as a problem. Pope Francis also uh, pointed this out in his uh, encyclical Gaudate Exaltate, I think is the name of it. Anyways, not that important. Anyways, but Pel- what is yeah? Pelagianism was a was a heresy in the early church named after a Celtic monk named Pelagius. He lived in the Christian city of Rome and later in Carthage in North Africa. Pelagius taught that God's grace was not necessary for salvation since human nature had not been truly corrupted by original sin. Our human weakness was due more to the environmental effect of bad example. Jesus' saving act was to give us an example of pure love that could be imitated. For Pelagius, God's favor could be obtained by moral rigorism or ascetic practice alone, and could be achieved outside of God's grace. Uh, So I think it's the idea... I'm going to simplify this in where I see it. I'm a good person. Yep. I mean, that's... You just have to be a good person. That's Pelagianism. Yes. I, I don't think he thought that, but more or less, that's that's Pelagianism. Right. It's, uh, my acts can save me. My good my good right. nature can save me. That's probably not true. It is it's a not. heresy. It's heresy. It's not true. He says this is overrun in the Catholic Church where most people think that. And he gets a little controversial Ooh. because he's I just he's going to talk about it, our use of Pelagianism in funerals. Ah. Really interested to hear oh, your thoughts on this. Here we go. I believe that most church-going Catholics have been so deeply impacted by Pelagianism that they really do not grasp the message of the good news of Jesus. How many times have I heard Catholics say something like this? If anyone deserves to be led into heaven, she does. 
How many times have I sensed confusion about God's mercy and hints of despair and jokes about buying one's way into heaven by doing good deeds? I remember about eight years ago being at a funeral of a parishioner. A brother priest preached on the text from John 4, 16, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The priest told the people that Jesus was not the way to God in an exclusive sense, but in the sense that he showed the true way to live life through his loving example. How often have funerals become not a proclamation of the good news of salvation through Jesus, but a proclamation of the righteousness or goodness of the deceased, with scripture readings chosen to eulogize the deceased rather than proclaim God's merciful love. Boom. So what he's saying here is too many times at a funeral will the priest try to say this guy's going to heaven because of he was a good person and here's some quotes that support that. Yeah, I, I've I've thought about this a lot and I've talked about this with people a lot. Like I want my funeral to be a celebration of Christ's glory in his resurrection and defeating death. That's what I want my funeral to be. I don't want it to be about me and what I did and didn't do. I want it to be a celebration of Christ's victory over death, which gives me the hope in salvation. That's what a funeral should be. It should be like almost like an Easter celebration. I, I'm going to throw a counter-argument to you. All right, throw it at me. Let's say you're... Let's say this is a fictional scenario, okay? Okay, fictional scenario. <laughs> Hypothetical. I'm so scared to say this. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's say fictional scenario. Right. Fam, old, older family member. Mm -hmm. Good dude. Good guy. Dies. Okay. Didn't go to church ever. Mm. Has a Catholic funeral because he was baptized and the right. family's Catholic. Yep. Priest gets up there, says some stuff to try and make the family feel better. Yeah. Yeah, he was a great person. This is all the good stuff he did. Is that wrong? I mean, I It's incomplete. Here's best. here's where I struggle. A funeral yeah. for better or for worse, it it's it's therapeutic in a yes, sense. Yes, it is it's, for the family. It's yes. consolation. And yes. so I don't I wouldn't want a priest to get up there and be like, didn't go to church, he's going to hell. I'm or, not arguing that. <laughs> I don't think your point's a counterpoint. All right, tell me, like, explain it to me. What me proclaiming Christ victor over death and provider of salvation is not saying, "Oh, I didn't go to church." Yeah, screw the guy. Like that's not the. But the thing is, as Christians, that's precisely what. That's why we're Christians. Because the bridge that Christ built between us and heaven. Like, without that, there is no hope of salvation. Without Christ, we are not able to go to heaven. We are doomed without that. And so for me to simply say, all right, he was a good guy, sweet deal. That's incomplete. That's dishonest. It's dishonest. It, the, like, okay, he's a great guy. Awesome. But what's more awesome is that we can have hope that we might see him again because of Christ's victory over death. All right. I got excited there. You you convinced me. <laughs> yeah, like, you're right. It, it was sort of a, it's a I was looking at it in a superficial yeah. way. 
And, and we don't know who goes to heaven and not. We, or not. we don't. So, yeah, you're right. It should right. be, the emphasis should be on like, the okay, hope for salvation. Like, okay, he may have never gone to church. So my hope is that God finds something, finds something in his heart to say, all right, my beloved son, you're coming home. Like, and, and, and you know, that's. And that's not contrary to what we right. believe is in the realm of possibility. It's not. Right. Okay. It's not. Uh, because, you know, for all we know, in his, in his dying breath, for all we know, in his dying breath, he could have completely embraced Christ. We don't know that. God knows it. And so, like, yeah, it sounds like a cop-out. Like, all right, well, I guess that means I just can never go to church, and then when I'm dying, the last breath, I'll say, all right, Jesus, I believe everything you've taught. Like, that is wah, way too risky. But, like, it's possible. To deny that it is possible is that's heresy. <laughs> I wanna anyway. I got excited there, but yeah, funerals should be Easter celebrations. They should honor the dead, but they should primarily be like Easter celebrations. I'm um. By the way, when I'm talking about this book, I'm hitting on what he's critiquing and pointing out because I kind of want us to like recognize how what so- sort of stuff yeah. is at play at our parishes. He offers solutions and stuff. Some of I think we should discuss some of these solutions though. Yeah. Most of it most of it is centered around that idea of you have to add to parish life. You have to do ministry. You have to do all these things. And and there's some real practical stuff he mentions like he got in his parish he got rid of the hymnals mm-hmm. and then just put the lyrics up on screens. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And people freaked out because they're like, oh. they're technology in the church. Oh, oh, oh. Like, what, are you Amish all of a sudden? Like, <laughs> yeah, like that's what? That's exactly right. Like, what? If it's just, use technology to our benefit. Like, like Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so he talks about stuff like that. But this is one of my favorite things he points out. And we have discussed this at different times mm-hmm. through some of the books because I always think about it. But All right, check this out. <laughs> I arrived at the church and was met by a very grumpy usher who told me in no uncertain terms that there would be no procession as there would be no homily. When I asked him why, he told me that people were on medication. By the time that liturgy was over, I needed to be on medication. I was the only person in the whole church other than the cantor singing Hosanna during the entrance. And in spite of the glares of the usher and his companions, I did dare to preach even if only for five minutes. <laughs> so much for my first Palm Sunday celebration, which did conclude, wow. by the way, within the one-hour mark. Jeez. We formed the habit of fast-track masses due to the constrictions of pastoral practice at a time when our churches were full, and it was of, of society societal value to go to church. In 1950s North America, it was not uncommon to find urban parishes that had eight or nine masses on a Sunday morning. <laughs> These masses would be on the hour from 6 a.m. until noon, often with two different celebrations at once, once in the church, once in the basement, because parishes had to schedule in this manner for one of two reasons. The sheer number of people who came to Mass and the discipline of fasting at that time before Second Vatican Council, Catholics receiving the Eucharist were required to fast from food and water from midnight until before they received the Eucharist. Yeah. So they had to go to mass to receive before they right. could eat breakfast. Right. <laughs> so he's critiquing. Out. He's explaining this one-hour mass as a trap. There's nothing doctrinally that binds us to no, it. No, there is not. Yeah. And then he points out 
all the ch- Catholic churches in Latin America and Africa where he says in Africa, people bring their lunch to mass. Yeah. Talk about early church. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so he's saying that that is like uh, that's like part of our cultural problem is there was a reason for it back in the day. Yep. And it and culture has changed. We don't have that problem anymore. And so we shouldn't stick to the one hour time mark. anymore. Exactly. That's tough, though, isn't it? It is. Because we're a very scheduled culture. So, like, everything happens by some hour mark, whether it's the quarter hour or the half hour or the top of the hour. Yeah. Like, and so it, it for us, it's nice to fit things into boxes on a calendar. Like, okay, I'm going to block off this for, you know, an hour, nice and clean, 60 minutes, and boom. <laughs> Here's, he's, this is a good one, too. Uh, he was talking about a mass, 600 people at this mass, and at least 25% of them would leave as soon as they received the Eucharist. Yep. That was bad enough. But the back wall of our church is all glass, and you can see the entire foyer from the front of the church. I'll never forget the first time I saw this. I couldn't believe my eyes. Hundreds of people were leaving while I was still giving out Holy Communion. Over the yeah. weeks that followed, I addressed this phenomenon in the parish newsletter and during Mass. I was bold enough to say... That although they were indeed there were indeed exceptional reasons to leave mass directly after receiving communion, anyone who left at that time every week needed to seriously consider what they were doing. Yes, I suggest that they refrain either from leaving church early in the week or from receiving the Eucharist. Yeah, and this earned me a stream of anonymous letters, including a letter to the bishop and even a letter to the Pope. Good. Like, <laughs> li- listen. I think, and I'm going to get excited again, so you're going to have to calm me down maybe, but I think priests are too afraid to be confrontational. I'm not a priest. I might be a seminarian studying to become one, but I'm not a priest. I don't. I can't appreciate that weight. But your divine call is to lead people closer to Christ and to bring and, and to help bring about their salvation. That's your divine call from God as a priest. I 100% believe that. And if people are doing what is detrimental to their salvation or or even, you know, at the very least detrimental to their faith, it is your duty to call it out. And there's ways to do it. But I think, you know, addressing people leaving Mass early is one of them. Yeah, he, and you know, his whole point is, all this stuff he's talking about is what he calls a culture of minimalism in Western churches. Oh my goodness, yes. And I think part of the priest thing not being confrontational is I think some of, like, people our parents' age are so used to basically being abused by clerics in their childhood. Yep. That the priest doesn't want to doesn't want to be confrontational because it's going to bring up all those memories. Yeah. Perhaps that's a theory I have. You know, like mm. like a priest is so used to being the bad guy yeah. over the past that, 60, 70 years that yeah. perhaps they're trying to be more inviting and right. nice and I don't know. So perhaps just invite those people to consider like having a conversation. Like, hey, let's uh let's talk about it. But it is hilarious. Like, if you're that stressed about getting out of mass, like, here's the thing. There's been times when um, 
like I've had to leave right after the Eucharist um, either because like one time I had to go to the bathroom really bad. Mm-hmm. One time I I was working for a church and I had to get to something. And yeah. I I felt terrible doing it because I was like, I don't want the priest to think I'm one of those people. Right. <laughs> but yeah, is it? I mean, it's crazy that it's like we're trapped in this pattern and we don't even know why we're trapped in it, but we can't get out of it. Yeah. Because like even someone like me who likes mass, sometimes I'm like, you've been preaching 20 minutes, dude. Yeah, that's a thing, too. So I, I don't know. It's it's a culture thing, and I wouldn't mind if there was a shakeup. But like, yeah, that's why it's interesting to look at Catholic churches in different countries that have different cultures right. that don't have one hour masses. And yeah, and the thing is too, if you had more stuff outside of the mass, you don't need to preach for thirty minutes. Yeah, and people aren't going to be in a rush to leave because they like the people they're around and want to catch up. And I feel like you can always tell the health of a parish based on how many people are talking to each other at the end of Mass. Yeah. And how many people leave early. And how many people leave Or don't leave early. Anyway. All right, one last thing I want to cover on this because it's hilarious. (laughs) He's talking about music. Ah, yes. About hymns. What a debate. And stuff. And... um. Let me read. He says, we live in a postmodern, hyper-individualistic culture. Postmoderners do not want to sing about doctrine or theology. Abstractions do not attract them, but authenticity does. Mm-hmm. As individualists, they relate, relate much better to hymns in the singular. A sense of collective identity can never be presumed. And young people who do not go to church generally do not have playlists on their iPhones that feature organ music. All this points to the fact True. that contemporary praise and worship style of music employed by so many churches today does speak powerfully to our culture. Yes. But here's that he's, as Catholics, we need to be careful about how we employ such music. Yes. An evangelical pastor told me once that he uses the Brenda principle when it comes to evaluating <laughs> the music sung in his church. I asked him what this was. He said, if you can remove the name of Jesus and replace it with Brenda and it works... It should not be used in church. <laughs> I love it. I love that. <laughs> what do you, What do you think about the music issue in church? Because this is a this is a hot debate within the oh, church. It's. It, I think it'll forever will be. I. I you know, because I try to look at things objectively in this department. I, I I respect the fact that there was a point in church history where the organ did not exist. And when it, it, I know this, I read, I've read some dialogues between yeah. um, some early monks and stuff, and yeah. there were debates about when they introduced the organ. This the, satanic the same, monstrosity. The same debates yeah. that are happening now happened then. And eventually we came to embrace the organ and, in fact, favor it over other instruments. So, why, if it's not dogmatic, which music is not? I don't know if that'll shock anyone, but it's not. Um, that means there will or maybe should come a day where the organ is no longer used. And maybe... Hot take. And maybe you throw in some drums. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> in fact, in Scripture, it mentions instruments, right? Yeah. Uh, so my thing with the music is this. And I think the church would agree with this. If it lifts you up toward heaven, 
and increases in you a sense of encounter with the risen Lord, it is good. But if it takes you to the realm of entertainment, it is no longer doing its purpose in the liturgy and is bad. It, music can't be entertaining? It can be, but that shouldn't be the focus. Oh. So that that's where I like I don't like like evangelical churches that you know they have a stage and it's basically a concert. It feels like the focus is on the musicians. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So which is why traditionally the music's been in the back. Interesting. You know, because it was supposed to represent you know like the choirs of angels in heaven singing. You know, so but that there's a whole theology behind that. But what I'm saying is. The music should never be the focus of the Mass. If it takes away from the focus of the Mass, Jesus, bad. You know what's an interesting case study about the music debate is um, Christmas music because those are our hymns that are played on contemporary radio stations that people find entertaining, people find beautiful. And the theology of Christmas music is great for the most part. Yes. Um, So it's like we... We've done it. We do it every year, yeah. just only for like a month. Right. You know? Like, think of like a song like, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful mm-hmm. or Silent Night or something right. like that. We're not that. talking about secular Christmas songs. No, I'm not talking yeah. about um, Alvin and the Chipmunks, right. 12 Days of Christmas. <laughs> I'm talking yeah. about like those classic, like religious hymns mm-hmm. that are still viewed as, yeah. they're still listened by non religious right. people because right. they sound good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also, like, there's some songs that have a time and place. Like, praise and worship has its place in the Christian life. Yeah. You know, I don't know what that place is in terms of the liturgy, but, yeah, I think to cut this debate on music short. But, yeah, I think if it, if it brings you closer to Jesus and helps you focus on the point of the Mass, with, which is Jesus, good. If it takes away from it, bad. Yeah, I want to... We we need to talk about this before we close out. I kind of hit some of the things that he's pointing out. The solutions he offers, the reason we didn't really cover them is because they're pretty simple and they're pretty obvious. Really, they it's are. It's about going uh, from maintenance to mission. And so yep. his thing is, if your church doesn't have any ministries... You need to go to your priest and you need to ask for one. Yes. And he might say, you're in charge of it then. Yep. And that's part of the call of Christianity. Yes. And so get some friends and do something. Yep. Start simple and build it because yeah. you'll be amazed at what. And he's like, that. that's essentially his, like he has some of those practical things about music and stuff, but that's essentially his thesis is offer ministry. Yeah. If your priest doesn't offer it, then you make it. Yeah. Yeah. And the laity is precisely the ones that should lead that charge. Yeah, that's that's what he said. Like I yeah. said in the beginning, the clergy, they are sacramental ministers. That doesn't mean they can't lead groups or whatever. But that's not their primary duty. Their primary duty is not to lead a Bible study. It's yeah. to, it's, they're sacramental ministers, ministers of sacrament. Now, that doesn't mean they can't allow a Bible study to happen or they can't doesn't mean they can't lead one or help one or out, but that's not it, their yeah. primary charge. That's the laity's job. And so yeah, if the if like you said, like he said, go to your pastor, hey, we want this ministry. And if he says, All right, well, you're running it then, good. My 
favorite ministry that I think every parish should have and is super easy to implement is water into wine. It's where you get some wine, you get some snacks, and you drink the wine and you discuss a couple biblical passages yeah. while you do it. And it's the idea is the idea of how it was created was listen, Jesus celebrated stuff. He got together with friends. He did stuff. He went to weddings like like let's let's have something fun to do that's right. centered around God. Yeah. No, that's that's all it takes really. Like I've uh, I've told people um, I've told people this. Some of my best and favorite moments in ministry were just talking to people. Yeah. Like with my like with youth group, like we'd have like what we call study group. It was a Wednesday night and we would sometimes I'd prepare a topic to like dive into deeper than what we do on a life night. And sometimes we would just talk about life. And then my role in that would just to like, you know, bring in the, the Catholic perspective on things and just to walk with them and yeah. i think that's 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 such a simple thing like that we don't like we think everything has to be this grand thing and this big you know lights and smoke and like no that's not the essence of ministry just yeah. get together that's that's step one bring people together in something that's directed toward the goal and yeah. that's it so and if the pastor's not doing it ask him and if he's all right, then you're going to run it. Okay, then run it. Or find someone that will. Yeah. Uh, you know. No pastor worth their salt is going to be like, you can't do a Bible study. Right. And that's the thing. <laughs> and that's my, 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 my follow-up to that will be, if a pastor refuses something, as long as it's, like, if it's something blatantly like, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Okay, that's that's the pastor's call on that. But if it's something that is like moral and would, you know, provide opportunities for encounter like a bible study go somewhere else yeah i would i'm openly saying that like if if i would say that too i know you're not supposed to say that but it that you know? says all you need to know yeah. about the place yeah. yeah and so but anyway but yeah i, I think this is a, a very worthy discussion to have i think more parishioners need to have it. I think we're getting to a place where slowly but surely the laity is starting to understand its role in in the church, and so movements are starting to spring up. So there is hope. Like I'm, yeah. I'm seeing it, and the, so yeah, don't be afraid. If you're involved with church life at your parish, this is a great book to read. If you want to be involved, this is also a great book to read yeah. because it'll give you some steps on how to right. do it. Now, there are sections of this book that are sort of written towards people that are directly working yes. in the parish. Yes. So it's not necessarily yeah. all of it is accessible, I guess, but there are right. there's plenty that is worth reading. Yeah. And I would recommend it. No, yeah, absolutely. And if you know, even if you don't implement it exactly how he proposes, at least will help you get thinking. Yeah. And start, okay thinking about the things we discussed on, on this episode like and then trying to make something happen. I wanted to be careful with some of the stuff I brought up because some of the stuff he talks about, uh, me and you would get too into it because yeah. like he talks of all about like Catholic school culture and how oh, certain parishes are get, just there to feed the school. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. I, I felt like it was best if we stayed away from some of that stuff. Smart. So 
But yeah, well, thanks uh, for joining us on this episode. It's Divine Renovation. By Father James Mallon. Exactly. Check it out. It's a great read, easy read, very like conversationally written. Yeah. Very well, to, easy to digest. So yeah, uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll hopefully catch you on the next one. Peace. Goodbye. <laughs>